Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name's Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant and the founder at Boldside. Hey, Em. Hey, Shell. Emily Bowen here and I'm the COO of Rare Kind. Today on the show, we're joined by Dr. Amantha Imber and we're talking about her latest book, TimeWise. She shares advice on becoming more productive, doing deep work and not being a slave to your email or Slack messages. You are going to want to take notes in this one. There are some big learnings for all of us about how we can become more wise and more productive with our time at work. And a bit about Dr. Amantha Imber. She's an organizational psychologist and the founder of behavioral science consultancy Inventium. Amantha is also the co-creator of the Australian Financial Review's Most Innovative Companies list. And she's worked with companies such as Google, Apple, Disney, Lego and Atlassian. If you haven't already gathered, Amantha is one of those overachievers. She's a creative and an entrepreneur, and like us, she is obsessed with work. You might have heard of her because she hosts the amazing podcast, How I Work, which has had over 3.5 million downloads. And she's appeared in Harvard Business Review many times. Oh my goodness, we're so pumped about this episode. We know you're going to love it. Enjoy the show. feel like today I'm about to introduce you as the president of the fan club for our guest for the second time because I know that you are a huge fan shell of Amantha Imba, who we have joining us today. Hi, Amantha. Welcome. Hello. It's so nice to be here. <laughs> we're, we're, as you can tell, we're pumped. And really, when we started this podcast in 2019, we had this goal of one day we're going to get Amantha Imba on our show. And here we are like three years later and we're having this conversation. So we're pumped. It's almost like a little uh, podcast royalty moment. Like we kind of, you know, (laughs) I'm finding myself sitting here going, all right, all right, we've got to like bring the A game today. But we also had this moment uh, earlier when I was sort of bringing up my laptop and I'm I'm just sitting here and Shell's over my shoulder and she saw the number of... uh, unread emails that I have in my mailbox and she just went oh my goodness we are talking to the right person today (laughs) oh gosh so we would love to talk about uh, I guess a bit about you Amantha and your kind of career story and and I guess dig into your new book that you've just released time wise so I'd love to just open this conversation and and start by asking what led you to write this book TimeWise? Well, let's see. Uh, The idea for TimeWise came because I've been hosting the How I Work podcast. At the time, I'd been hosting it for about three years and I learned like so, so many great tips in every episode, but it's not the most efficient way to learn, like listening to how I work, because there'll also be like lots of stories and things that are interesting, but you know, not practical strategies to apply. So I thought, you know, it'd be quite 
efficient for people that like efficiency and productivity to actually take the best tips that I've learned from the show and put them into a book. And so it, it was like, well, that seems like a sensible idea, doesn't it? And this producer that I um, had, had worked with in the past for a TV thing had connected me with the wonderful Kathy Baker from CMC Management. And she's like, you should speak to Kathy. I think she'd be really good for your career and helping to, you know, to manage, you know, like your own personal brand and what you're doing with it. And I caught up for a coffee with Kathy. And right at the end of the coffee, she's like, you know, are you working on any books at the moment? Because I know that Penguin Life, which is an imprint of Penguin, are looking for this kind of a book. And I said, oh, I am actually. I've just finished a book proposal. And so um, Kathy then match made me with the wonderful Izzy Yates at Penguin. And gosh, like within four or six weeks, I had a book deal with Penguin, um, which is ridiculous. It normally takes ages to get a book deal. Like the one that she's working on at the moment, I think it took two years to secure a book deal. Wow. Uh, you know, you've mentioned uh, that you also host the podcast as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And I guess we're, we're keen to understand why work? You know, what is it that led you to explore work? Well, let me answer that question first. So what led me to explore work is from quite a young age, when I was a teenager, I decided that being a psychologist was a career I was very interested in. So I mentioned my mum's a psychologist. She's a clinical psychologist. And what, what she would do when I was younger, she would talk to me about her work and she would, you know, tell me about the sorts of things that she did because, you know, she'd sort of tell me stories about her work. And I remember she described her job as being like a detective of the mind. And I thought, oh, that sounds very interesting. And I was always drawn towards careers where I would be helping people that I, th I think is probably in my DNA. And so I ended up doing psychology. I remember in second year though, because I assumed I'd be a clinical psych like my mum. And in second year, we got introduced to all the different fields of psychology. And I learned about organisational psychology, which is all about helping people perform better and be happier at work. And the fear that I'd had with clinical psychology is I thought, how could I go home at night and almost detach emotionally from the, you know, the, the really hard things and the traumas that I would be hearing during the day and, and being quite empathic as a person, I wasn't quite sure if I could detach myself. And so organizational psychology felt perfect because it, it wasn't sort of going into all that deep emotional stuff that I wasn't sure if I was capable of doing. And I also thought, well, we spent so much of our waking lives at work. I mean, there are all sorts of statistics, but I think a common one is 80,000 hours of our adult life we spend working. And it felt like a really noble thing to pursue, to go, well, I'm going to help people have those 80,000 hours be as good as they can be for the people that I can touch with my work. Uh, so that's why organisational psychology now, in terms of how I work and how that came about, or did you want us to, should we stay on organisational psychology? <laughs> no, no, go for it. Talk, tell us about how I work. Because I, I mean, I'm really interested as I've heard a bit more of your story around, you went into this field of, of organisational psychology. There's a lot of research that goes into being, and you've done your doctorate in organisational psychology as well. But you've also got this creative edge 
And I'm really curious about how you have married the two worlds up of you, you, you need this creative outlet, but you're in a field that's very research driven and scientific. And there's so much in, in merging those two worlds. How have you done that? And, and I guess how I work, I'm sure is a creative outlet for you as well. But can you talk to us a bit about that? I feel like my work is actually really creative. The buckets of my work are creating a podcast and I think creating a podcast, it's not all creative, but there's a large degree that is creative. It involves writing. So I do a lot of writing. Obviously, um, you mentioned TimeWise, my latest book, but I, I write for places like Harvard Business Review and Forbes and the Financial Review and stuff like that. And writing is creative. Uh, I do a lot of public speaking and I feel like that is cre- like it's performative. And so it kind of brings me back to my acting days and it's creative designing a good presentation. So I actually see my work as really creative. And what I'm struggling with right now off the back of launching TimeWise and, and the bulk of the publicity is all done for that. And, and now it feels like this book that I did a billion years ago is that I feel like I'm in this kind of creative, like murky area of ambiguity and I'm searching for my next creative project. So I feel like there's a lot of creativity involved. Also, I do a lot of new product development at Inventium and contribute to that. So I feel like my work is highly creative, but at the moment I'm just going through the last few weeks have been rough where I'm just like, what, what am I doing? Like I, I don't have the next project that I'm focused on right now. So the longer that I listen to you, Amantha, the more I find myself thinking, so where does this woman find all of her extra hours in the week that the rest <laughs> of us do not have? And, you know, I'm always just like, is she the Beyonce of the work world? Because it's like, you're good at this and you do this and then you do that and you're good at this. And there's all these little <laughs> moments where you go, oh, and she, you know, nearly got a record deal. And uh, <laughs> so it's so cool. And, uh, you know, for the rest of this episode, I guess if we can start to try and take away for ourselves and on behalf of our listeners, some of your learnings and some of the techniques that you do put in place. Uh, I mean, you mentioned at the moment that you're feeling like you're in a bit of a a space for a few weeks of what is it that comes next? And I'm sure that you have your way of processing that. But being someone in my 30s, one of the the questions that I guess we did talk about um, before coming to record this episode was around when you hit your 30s and you found that you observed your own work habits starting to deteriorate. And I guess that stands out for me uh, as something that I, I kind of go, oh, like my little radar sort of uh, goes, I think that could be relatable content for me. So <laughs> I know you talk about it in your book, but do you mind if we go there and, and hear from you on that? Yeah. So I, yeah, and it's funny, like I I feel like I've got lots of time like just to pick up on your earlier comment um and yeah I I feel like I'll get that I'll get people saying that a lot where do you fit it all in but for me I feel like there's heaps of time I've got like spare time and I you know use it in different ways but yeah but look in terms of the problems and I think and I think I'm at that point now I don't think I would have said that a few years ago so where I got to uh and this would have been like 2017, 2018, I think. So what was I? Late 30s, I think, at the time, uh, where I I had a, a young child. Um, so my daughter, Frankie, I don't know, she would have been like three or four at the time, something like that. And life was really busy and I had so many demands on my time. I was running Inventium at that point and I just... 
I felt like I was really, really busy, like I was crazy busy all the time. But I, but I was like having this point where I was reflecting on the year that had just been because I think I'd taken myself off to a health retreat, so I was doing some reflection. And I'm like, what have I, what have I even done? Like I've checked, I've checked my inbox a lot. And I've written a lot of emails and I've responded to a lot of emails and I've reread emails lots and lots of times and been really inefficient there. I've gone to meetings. I've, you know, had lots of conversations with my team and clients and staff and I've, you know, done presentations. But I just, I felt like, I just felt this lack of progress on the things that really mattered. And I felt like I hadn't, I hadn't like, put anything new or impactful into the world. Like everything was just sort of business as usual. I'd maybe put out some fires at Inventium because I think like around that time we'd we'd had sort of like a, f- a few sort of issues with the culture that I was, that I was trying to deal with. Um, but, yeah, and I just I, like it led to this big reflection on my work habits. And at the same time, which was great timing. I'd read, someone had recommended, a close friend had recommended I read Deep Work by Cal Newport. And I read that book and, and you know, for, for listeners not familiar, the premise of the book uh, in a nutshell is that as knowledge workers, so people that are paid for the value of our thinking at work, there are two types of work that we can engage in. We can engage in deep work, which requires focus and concentration and large blocks of uninterrupted time. And then there's shallow work, which is the less cognitively demanding work, um, which is things like email and responding to things on Slack and phone calls and dealing with interruptions and little things like that. And because of how addictive the digital distractions are, in work and in life, we we end up uh, unconsciously prioritising shallow work and fitting in little bits of deep work in and amongst the shallow work. And that summed up my life to a T. Like I felt like my life was ruled by my email and by meetings and by my phone and I was like, like I couldn't remember a time where I'd spend an hour where I was just uninterrupted and not dipping into something to distract me and relieve that horrible feeling of stuckness that you feel when you are working on something that is hard and meaningful and that matters because that is hard work um, and it can be very unpleasant work emotionally. And so we're drawn to the fun digital distractions where we hop into our email and we get this false sense of progress because we're responding to things and we're deleting things and we can see things moving around and it feels really good, but it's not actually doing meaningful work. Um, So I was in that kind of a pattern. And so I started then to dig really deep into the psychological research and go, why am I having this problem and how can I solve it? And that then it really led me on a, a quite a major pivot for my career because before then I'd spent the last decade like eat, sleeping and breathing innovation and creativity and that was my world and that was what I helped clients around. But now it's very much around how can we work better? How can we use our time more wisely? How can we form better habits? Um, and it's, yeah, it was a really pivotal moment. It's really amazing hearing you say and share about that transition you've made from really spending most of your time in the shallow work and moving into that deep work zone. And yeah, we were laughing about M. So M's got, <laughs> M, I looked at M's emails like at a glance and was like, there's 7,000 unread emails. <laughs> 
else in your inbox. <laughs> but funnily enough, they're not. I did explain to Shell, they're not in my inbox. They're in the folder that emails go to for 2022 after they exit my inbox. And I kind of went, yeah, so now I look at it. Sorry, guys, I read about 50% of the emails that I receive. I don't know if that's efficient or inefficient. Uh, I, I, I am a slave to my inbox and I do not like my inbox. And I think that's the point. It's how do we overcome being a slave to our inbox? Because so many of our listeners, Amantha, are going to relate to that of feeling like I'm stuck in a cycle of shallow work and I, I want to get out of it, but how on earth do I break this habit that I've got. And so what advice would you have around, I guess, your own learnings of breaking the habit and and what could our listeners try to get out of that cycle? The best piece of advice that's had the biggest impact on me comes from um, someone that I adore. Her name's Laura May Martin. And uh, I came across her work because of her job title. Her job title is Google's Executive Productivity Advisor, and so her job is to advise executives at Google how to work better. Um, so cool, and she's like such a, a wonderful person. And she she thinks a lot about email and about her inbox. And you know how at Google they have those twenty percent projects um, where you can like use twenty percent of your time to pursue. Uh, like essentially like a side hustle for Google. And so hers was around um, a training program in how to manage your inbox. And so she's thought so deeply about this. I've had her on How I Work a couple of times and um, I write about some of her strategies in in time-wise, like about why we need to treat uh, email in the same way we do our laundry. But something I, I don't write about in the book, which is something I've I learned since, um, you know, submitting the book, can't change the book now, um, is really practical advice. Because I mean, lots of people will go, oh, batch check your email. And for those that are unfamiliar with that advice, it is well-trodden productivity advice. Um, it basically means just check your email three or four times a day. So like go into your inbox deliberately, check it, and then close it and get out. And do that three or four times a day. And there's been research into doing that um, compared to just being in and out all day. And that is actually great for our wellbeing and productivity. Surprise, surprise. Of course it is. Um, But that's like easier said than done, right? Um, You know, I know like with a lot of the clients that we work with at Inventium, they're like, well, I I can't possibly only check my email three times a day. I need to be more responsive than that. Um, You know, clients or customers need me. And I totally get that. And so Laura said a different way of looking at it is just make sure you have at least one period in the day for say an hour where you just close your inbox. And that feels really doable to go, okay, my inbox can be open. I'm not going to feel guilty about that. I mean, look, that's it's not ideal hygiene when it comes to productivity, but whatever. Um, but at least have a period in the day just for an hour, maybe more, maybe you might stretch that where you close your inbox and you don't check email or, or whatever, like, you know, your Achilles heel is when it comes to productivity. Mine is definitely email, but I know for some people it might be Slack um, or, you know, it, it might be social media, who knows. Um, but that that is, um, out of all the advice I've heard for emails, that I feel like is one that's really helped me. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money Medical, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and My Millennial Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Can I ask, because I remember hearing, um, I listened to the Cal Newport episode way back uh, on your podcast, and I remember hearing him kind of talk about this idea of like him not having an email. and um, I, <laughs> That sounds amazing. How yeah, do I do that? <laughs> yeah, like how do we all get jobs where we don't have email or Slack or Teams? Uh, one of the things I want to know, I'm, I'm curious to know about you, your personal habits of like do you have like a two-hour I don't check emails for two hours or what do you have any structure around that on a good day I will have at least two hours in the morning before lunch where I will just do deep focused work so I will know what I'm doing ahead of time because I will know what is the most important thing that I can be working on right now. Sometimes that's deadline driven, but sometimes it's not deadline driven. And I am pretty good. Like if I'm clear on what I'm doing and I'm clear on why I'm doing it and why it matters, I have trained myself. It's not a natural skill. It is absolutely involved training um, to, to just go, okay, I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to switch off all distractions and notifications and I'm going to get this done. And then when I've got it done, I can reward myself by hopping into my email because I love being in email because I too experience that false sense of progress and it's really addictive. Um, and uh, I remember I had a podcast guest, um, her name was Anne Morris. She's, um, she's a, a thought leader over in America. It's like our inbox is where we get affirmed that people love us. Um, it's basically our inbox is full of people saying, I love you and I need you. Um, and I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, it, yeah. It's a funny thing. And uh, look, if you, if either of you have any comment on this, I'd welcome it. And I do like sometimes, meant to turn these episodes into just my personal counselling <laughs> sessions. Uh, I, actu- I actually wish that I had that hit of whether it's dopamine or something else from emails. I just, I find it so draining and I find myself, I am a slave to it because so much is happening in my inbox. And, you know, there is that sense of, well, how do I do my job if I'm not, you know, available to that? And I'm, I'm working on that personally at the moment and implementing some of the strategies that you've talked about and that I've heard uh, without knowing it, you're my sponsor through your, your <laughs> podcast and I listen to it when I need that, you know, get back on track moment. Um, but I actually don't enjoy it. I find it really draining to to respond to emails um but uh, you know I'm probably as I said just getting that off my chest a little bit and particularly for anyone else out there that's listening that feels the same Mm. I think one thing that can help uh 
because a lot of people treat their inbox as their to-do list and that can make it feel really overwhelming because then that leads to emails sitting in your inbox and and kind of like gnawing away at you and when you're in there they're like you need to deal with me you need to deal with me and you're (laughs) like no I just want to get to inbox zero and it's this tension and so one thing that I think is very helpful is to go identify emails that are actually a task in disguise and actually require some time and take them out of your inbox. I think there is a way to do, for, for those that are on the Google ecosystem, I think there's a way to like turn an, a, an email in Gmail into a task in Google Tasks. Um, I, I, it's actually on my list of, to figure that out because someone told me that recently. But uh, that, that will help because that way... You, you can move through your emails a lot more quickly. Um, I've also found that having automating emails to go into different folders can be really helpful. So how my inbox is set up is that I've got my my main inbox and I should add, I use Superhuman as my email client, which, which makes this very easy. But I mean, um, like Gmail has similar solutions and I'm sure Outlook does as well. I, I'm really... I, I stay away from Outlook. Um, so I, I don't know as much about it as I should. But um, so what I do, my folder system is I've got my inbox, which is everything that's that's um, kind of coming in that's addressed to me personally. I've got a folder that's called Other. And this is for emails that are not addressed to me personally, but that I'm on. It might be like a group email or something like that, which suggests that they're less important and less of a priority. Um, also, newsletters go into the other folder as well. Um, but I am pretty diligent of unsubscribing to things or blocking like email addresses from even making it into my inbox because I like, you know, short term pain for long term gain. Uh I've got a folder that is read later because I feel like that is a source of inbox stress because, you know, there, there are some newsletters that I get and I love and I want to read every single one, but they're often sent to me at inconvenient times when I don't have time to read. And so I've got a read later folder, which I dip into when I specifically have time to read and consume. Uh, I've also got a reference folder for things that I know that I'll need to reference in the next week, but I don't want them sitting in my inbox and commanding my attention, but I know I'll need them in the next week. I don't really need the reference folder because I could just search, but it's just easy just to tab on over to this other folder. Um, and then I've got a to-do um, a to-do list uh, folder, which is stuff that I actually need to action, but they're quite quick things to action so I can work through them. So that's that's what my email looks like. Okay. As Shelley would say, that is so, yep, so good. And I I feel like it's good because I've just learned some new ideas, got a bit of inspo, but I also feel like there's a, uh, you know, I'm on the right track. So yeah. there's some validation in there too. And I know I wouldn't be alone, but early on in, in um, your response there, you talked about this sense of email stress and, and you really framed that up in a way that I just went, yep, she gets it. She understands me because it, it is overwhelming. And particularly when some emails you get, they can be a, a to-do, but they're a quick res- quick to-do or they're a quick response. Others, I feel like, well, there's a three-month project that is now on my <laughs> list. Um, but yeah. Look, yes. The that's joys. my problem, right? <laughs> yeah, the joys. Hey, and here's one other tip, actually, because I feel like the uh, another category of emails that can cause our inbox to feel like a really unpleasant place is people requesting things from us 
and we um, are kind of like, oh, should I do it? Shouldn't I? And then maybe you've decided, no, I don't want to do it. But then you don't want to let them down. And it's funny, like counterintuitively, we feel that if we say, if we take a while to say no to something that's come to our inbox, that's better. It's more polite, but people always prefer a quick no. So I have found that that also reduces inbox stress by just if if a request comes on my time and I get many requests on my time every day, I'm not afraid to say no. Um, I politely decline a lot. I will generally give a reason if they have crafted a personal email, but I'm also not afraid to delete emails that are generic requests on my time. So I like so for example, I get a lot of. Um, like, I don't know, five or 10 a day podcast pitches, um, PR people and guests pitching themselves to be on how I work. And I used to, I went through this stage where I'm like, I'm going to respond to every single email I get because that is the polite, humane thing to do. But now I'm like, no, if they have sent me a generic email, that doesn't deserve me crafting a personal reply. And so I'm also not afraid to delete things. Um, so that's that. That's for what it's worth. I find that helpful for myself. I needed to hear that. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> this is. I, I just know this is going to be so helpful for our listeners who are struggling in this space of, you know, you want to do the right thing, but a lot of this is boundaries and discipline. And I love in the book how you really unpack some of those disciplines and practices and and habit forming things that can help you in the long term with your productivity. I want to get into one of my favorite areas and the biggest, okay, yeah, we're really going about, this is really like we're wanting your advice on how we can improve our own productivity, (laughs) right? right? But like meetings, let's talk about meetings. And we all saw that um, tweet that went went round everywhere for the last however many years of that that, um, meeting should have been an email. But that kind of thing, I think there's two sides to that coin because there's a lot of emails that that should be meetings as well. So it's kind of this catch-22 and there's such a huge time sink and often we get invited to meetings and we're sitting there and we're like, why am I even here? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, why am I, I could be, I could be, you know, having a drink somewhere at a cafe and it'd be more, <laughs> more productive and, and better outcome for everyone. Um, what do you do about working out I guess whether meetings, you, you need to be there or if they drive value. Like how do you approach this whole world of meetings? Mm. Well, if someone is scheduling a meeting for information sharing or giving updates, don't have a meeting. Do it asynchronously. That is my biggest piece of advice. And we have found through our own research, like for example, we're, we're doing some work um, with a, a big global um, food company. It's very well known. And we were helping them sort out issues that they were having with productivity and particularly meeting culture. And we surveyed a few hundred people at this organisation and we asked them, what what's the main purpose of the meetings that, that you attend? Um, and what we found is for 50% of all the meetings that were being held at this organisation, they were for information sharing and people just giving updates. And if you just go, well, that's that's much better if we do that asynchronously in a non-live way, like through email or Slack or in a Google document or a Google sheet that we can all update collaboratively. Um, people can consume it at their own time, at their own pace, and we're not 
commanding people's time or, you know, record a video, use Loom to record a video. People can watch it at 1.5x speed, um, thus saving time because most people talk more like slower than we can think and consume. So that's my number one advice. Like meetings are really good when there's a decision to be made. It's good for decisions. Um, Meetings are also really good for like, um, you know, having debate and, um, you know, they can be really good for uh, strategic and creative thinking, but provided people have done the work beforehand. So coming to a meeting cold and saying to people, let's have a brainstorm about how we can solve this problem is really bad use of people's time because you like that sort of a process and, and research supports this says if you can do that asynchronously first, like solo work first, and then come to the meeting with your thoughts, you're in a far better place to add value um, and then for people to build on those ideas and so forth. So um, think about the purpose of your meeting and if it's for information sharing or updates, make it an email or a video. And I, there, I was just thinking around this idea and you, t- you do talk about it in the book around hijacking. Like how do you how do you respond to people hijacking your calendar or your time? Because I'm sure you you mentioned all the requests you get to speak to, um, you know, lots of pitches all the time. What is your kind of way of encouraging people? And I suppose for people who it's, I guess, a different scenario when you're in the longer term part of your career and you've actually built up enough currency and equity to be able to say no but how would you do it if you're in the earlier part of your career where you don't maybe feel like you've got the influence or power to be able to say no to certain people it is it is challenging like there is no easy answer I think one thing to do is to proactively think about what does your ideal day look like and I wrote about this a little bit in TimeWise um, where John Zaratsky, who um, his ex-Google has written a couple of best-selling books, Sprint and Make Time, which are brilliant. Um, he has this thing where he has a calendar template of like where he's designed his ideal day and he, you know, he knows what, like from a work point of view, when is the best time for him to do deep focused work? When is the best time for emails? When does he prefer to do meetings and so forth? And he's got this ideal day. So it's a template. And he tries to craft his days so they are as close to that template as possible. And John's further along in his career. So it's, you know, it's easier for him. And also he um, is his own boss. But I think when you're earlier on in your career, have that idea of what is what does your ideal day look like? And that way you can at least be more proactive and kind of play offense, if you like, rather than defense. Because I think a lot of us just by default, we're playing defense with our calendars and we're just feeling like we're at the mercy of everyone else. And to an extent you are. Um, And I think that's like, that's where I I see, you know, myself and my team make good change because I think the more uh, like your boss, for example, understands the importance of say, you know, working to your chronotype, which is, you know, work like, you know, doing your deep hardest work and not being in meetings um, when your brain is is most um, alert and understanding that kind of thing, like it's going to make you more productive for the organization. Your boss will look better if you can do something like that. Um, your boss will also look better if you're not spending 
half your week in meetings because you'll be able to actually do work that progresses the the purpose or the goals of the team that you're in. So I think certainly educating your boss on these sort, sorts of concepts and sort of getting um, getting them thinking about that because like sometimes, you know, you are at the mercy of your manager to make these changes to working norms. But like one thing you can do, I think, is, um, you know, just think proactively about what does your ideal day look like and wherever possible, just making changes to make your day look like that. And I love that idea of of talking to your boss to say, when I'm in this zone, I'm getting so much more work done, which means I'm pushing those things forward that you you really care about and selling it in a way that makes them feel good, feel more confident in your kind of output and all those things. That way it's a win-win. I think when we're having these conversations, mm-hmm. we can set it up for a win-win with our um, employer, especially if you're in that early part of your career. Absolutely. The other thing I I guess has come from my experience is sometimes you need to experiment. Like when you're in the earliest stages of your career, you might not realise that something doesn't work for you until it hasn't worked for you for a period and you look back. And something that comes to mind for me, particularly, uh, I feel a little bit old when I say things like this, but in my 20s, uh, I, was, I was going hard at networking and what I call extra career extracurriculars and, and my day job itself. And that has absolutely paid off and I, I had intention around why I was doing that. However, it couldn't last forever. You know, I didn't have, I don't have the endurance for that to be the same for the next three or four decades of my career. And what I've really looked at over the last few years is, well, what am I committing to and where am I spending my time so that I've got those energy credits in the bank and there are some boundaries I've put in place. I mean, the, what's your uh, words of wisdom or advice, experience, reflections? What would you comment on in regards to overcommitment and how that can fit into careers and work and productivity? Oh, yeah. Um, goodness. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I can relate to that. I feel like I worked very, very hard, very, very long hours in my 20s. Um, and, I, and I worked really long hours in my 30s up until I had my daughter when I was 36, I think I was. Um, and so I I was absolutely, you know, doing the 50, 60 hour week and just throwing myself at it. And look, I'm not, I'm not sure like if I have regrets around the way that I was working because I, I loved what I did. So it never felt like I was forcing myself to do it. Like I, I, I you know, I'm fortunate in that, in that fact. Um, but yeah, in terms of overcommitting, I think, you know, look, one good piece of advice I uh, I got um, a couple of years ago is, uh, and this is also in time-wise, actually, it's about, am I allowed to swear? Yes, sure. That's fine. Okay. We're, we're um, all adults. Okay. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt that there are like five-year-olds listening to this podcast going, what did she just say? Um, <laughs> But uh, I got this great advice. Um, he was like a, a tech founder um, over in Silicon Valley and he does something where every week he will do this thing. He calls it pruning bullshit from your diary and where he will look at everything that he has scheduled in his diary and he'll be like, does that directly help move me closer to one of my goals? And and, and he gave the example of, of going to a networking event where he said, look, I've got this networking event in my diary and maybe I'll meet an investor there. 
maybe. And then maybe, maybe they'll want to give money to my company, but the chances are quite low and my time is probably better spent um, in an activity that directly moves me closer to my goals. Like, you know, fixing this bug that has led to lots of customer complaints. Um, and, you know, obviously one of his goals is to uh, you know, like reduce customer churn, for example. So I think that can be a really good exercise to go, you know, have you overcommitted yourself? Um, but also, I mean, like if you're forcing yourself to do, like it's good to force yourself to do things that are hard and that are challenging and that leads to growth, but too much of that leads to burnout. So I think it is finding that balance so that you're pushing yourself, but you're not burning yourself out. Yeah. I love these ideas of what's the opportunity cost and being intentional. So for some people, 60 hours a week of career-based or work-based activity may be overcommitment. For others, it may not because it's such a personal thing, but also I believe our energy goes further when we do have that direct sense of connection with why we're doing that. What is that move forward? And um, I actually, something that stuck in my mind and, and I believe we borrowed it for a recent podcast or we at least kicked it around was some um, some advice from Mia Friedman when, when you interviewed her for How I Work. And she spoke on this idea of um, if somebody, and I might get the details slightly off, but the, the idea is there, uh, if somebody asks her to do a lunch event or go for lunch and her response is along the lines of, I don't do lunches. And so it's not, I can't do lunch because that opens the door to a, well, what about this date instead? Or what about, you know, this opportunity instead? It's actually, I don't do them. And that's, you know, you talk about politely declining. She has her way of politely declining and also saying, that's just not something that I do. So I really liked that. And I've taken that on board and and I guess that's an example that I reflect on and go, yeah, that's a person who is looking at their calendar, which is no doubt extremely busy and identifying where their time is best spent in order to make sure that of all of the commitments that they have, it's not overcommitment. Mm-hmm. It actually serves a purpose. Yes. I, I love that advice from Mia. I think just the difference between I don't do something versus I can't, because if you say I can't do this, it invites a conversation. It's like, well, when can you do it? But if you don't do something, that's the end of the conversation. Yeah, I loved that. I this isn't in our questions, but what are there any? Is there anything in your work world that you don't do? <laughs> there's, there's lots. Um, <laughs> there's, there's lots. Uh, I'm just thinking where, like, um, look, uh, and and. These are like, there will be exceptions. Um, but for example, I don't do meetings before lunchtime. Uh, my, my assistant and I are trying some something at the moment actually where I don't do meetings on Wednesdays. Um, uh, although it is a Wednesday and we're recording this. <laughs> so like, it's, it's currently Wednesday before lunchtime. Is this in the meeting this category? Is, <laughs> this is the exception. No, for me, this isn't a meeting. No, a, a podcast interview um, is definitely not a meeting um, and it, it requires a really, a very different energy. So for a podcast, like I, I, I would typically schedule podcast interviews for the morning actually because I want to be very cognitively alert and my best like zone for work is before lunch. And so um, certainly for how I work interviews, I'll almost always do them in the morning. Um, I found that like if I do them in the evening, like if I'm juggling time zones or in the afternoon, um, I just like I'm I'm in a different zone and it, I don't think it's as good. Um, I, I don't speak at dinners. Um, so something I 
So, so I, I get asked to do a lot of keynote speaking, um, and uh, I am sometimes asked to speak at dinner events, although not often. And in the past, when I've done that, there have been a couple of occasions, and I've just walked away going. That was a waste of everybody's time. That was a waste of the client's money. People were drunk. They were chatty. They didn't want to learn. They just, you know, they they just, you know, they just want to be chatting and drinking. Like, why would you inflict a keynote speaker on them? Um, and so I don't do dinners. That is something that I don't do. I don't work Fridays because we do the four-day week at Inventium. Um, and again, sometimes I will, but only if I want to. Um, but, but like, no one's going to like no one in my team is going to book anything on a Friday. Um, like the only exceptions would be like if I'm speaking at an event that is on a Friday and so that's oh, I obviously have to be there on a Friday. So, yeah, these are a few things I will typically um, – so I, I do strength training four times a week and so I, I typically um, – I find that breaking my day up with uh, a training session in the late morning – um, is something that I typically do. Although I'm, I'm experimenting with that. Like today I did a workout before this podcast. So I'm like, that's going to work better with my day and what I've got on. So th- there's some of the some of the things. And I try not to check email first thing. That is also a thing that does, doesn't always work, but I typically try not to be in my inbox first thing. I love what you've said around there's that experimenting and working out where your energy comes from and when you're going to be in your right zone for the right type of work. So there's so much for us to reflect on in ourselves and go, okay, if I'm doing this type of activity for me, I might be my most creative at night. And so it's just working out and having that self-awareness to go, when am I my, my best self and allocating those activities towards that. So I love those reflections, Amantha. And I think we've got time for one. We're, yeah, we're getting close, but I'll let you have one more. <laughs> M keeps us to time because I just like chat, 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 chat. And I'd love to too, but someone's got to be the bad cop. <laughs> so I'd love to get, at, I guess, to kind of round out this conversation. What is the best or worst career advice? We'll change Shaq. So what's the best or worst career advice you've ever received? Ah. Uh. I, like I, I feel like whenever, whenever um, I'm asked this, it, it's sort of like dependent on what, like what, what am I doing? Ah, um, oh, so hard. What is something that I've taken on board that is useful? Look, I think that, and I don't know if this is advice per se, but it's something I found that I've done and it's been infinitely helpful. Like people talk about getting a mentor and mentors are great and I've got some great mentors um, that, that, that may or may not know that they're my mentors. I'm not sure. Um, but what I found invaluable over the last few years is having peer mentoring groups where you're essentially like in a group and it's, it's you know, like fairly like it's, it's facilitated. It's not just like catch up over drinks and where you share what's going on in your lives and you help each other out with challenges, um, typically work-related challenges that you're going through. So I've got two groups where I do that, one that's been going for years. Um, so one of those groups started four or five years ago. Um, I started it with another woman and it was basically uh, for, for founder CEOs, female founder CEOs. So it's all women, um, you know, re- really uh 
um, like the the founding group was, I mean, they're still they're still amazing. Um, like people like Kate Morris from Adore, um, Cyan Tade from Envato, although she's since moved up um, up north and uh, and is not in the group anymore. Like Abby from Keep Cup, like just these amazing female founders who are also leading their businesses. Although for a lot of us, we've actually stepped down from the CEO role, which has also been interesting. And we meet up um, typically about every six to eight weeks, and we meet for three hours. And how that three hours is structured is that we do sort of like an around the ground where for the first, like we each have three minutes to share the best and the worst of what's happened in our lives um, since we last met. And then a challenge or a thing that we want the group's thoughts, ideas, advice, experiences around. Um, and then we sort of like divvy up those three hours according to how how meaty each of the challenges are. And I love those women and that group has been amazing. And I've got a similar group now um, that's just started this year, which is with um, fellow B Corporation founders. So B Corp is is like a certification process for businesses that put purpose over profit, um, started in America. And uh, yeah, there's eight of us in that group um, and we all have founded and lead B Corp businesses. Same same kind of deal. And that is facilitated by a wonderful woman called Gail. Um, so that that is so good. Get peer mentors, um, like upwards mentors are great, but peer mentors are really awesome. What's really cool about Indy on that note is Shell and I recently released an episode on mentors and we had two different perspectives that we shared. Uh, I'm a believer in all mentoring, but in particular spoke to uh, mentor moments. Shell uh, is somebody who's had a huge amount of success down a more conventional mentor path and you've just added a third perspective there. So if anybody's listening to that and and keen to learn more about mentors, uh, you may like to go and look up that episode. If you've already listened to it, you can sort of add a mentor's uh, piece about mentoring in there as well for consideration and and maybe even take a mix from that. Uh, But more importantly, Amantha, can you please plug where we can go and learn more from you? Where's the best place for us to find you at the moment? Well, probably the two best places um, if you're into podcasts, which you obviously are, if you are at the end of this episode, um, search for How I Work wherever you listen to your podcasts. And that's where I interview some of the world's most successful people about their work habits and how they use their time more wisely. And my uh, latest book, Time Wise, is out now and you can get it wherever you buy books from. And I'm on the socials as well. Like you can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram. LinkedIn, I'm just Amantha Imber and Instagram, Amantha I, and I post semi-regularly. Awesome. We're, we loved this conversation, Amantha. Thank you so much. And I can attest the book is fabulous. So it's oh, get it. You will enjoy it. I've had to take heaps of notes and actually change heaps of my own behavior and habits as a result of that learning. So jump on, buy it. You will love it. And thank you so much. And as always, if you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review and rating and uh, follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, guys. Speak to you soon. Bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money Medical, My Millennial Health, 
My Millennial Business, and My Millennial Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hulu.